0: This is episode 184 of That Shakespeare Life. If you like our show and want to go even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member. Members get access to our history activity kits, Shakespeare printables, and behind-the-scenes access to get even closer to history right here in the studio. Explore all the member benefits and bonus features at castycashcom experience, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details.
1: Hi, I'm Marion Gibson, Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literatures at the University of Exeter, and I'm the author of Early Modern Witches and Shakespeare and the Elizabethan Exorcism Controversy. Another great method for exploring the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend and yours, Cassidy
0: Cash.
1: Elizabeth Stiles did have a rat named Philip that she nursed with blood.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: In 1606, as Shakespeare staged Macbeth, James I had published his book on witchcraft and the supernatural called Demonology, and witch trials were rampant across the UK, bringing women of all ages and classes to court for acts of anger, revenge, and even mental illness, all of which called them under suspicion of evil magic. The presence of witches on stage was not merely theatrical for Shakespeare's plays, but also represented a cultural reality for turn of the 17th century society, which witches, spells, magic, and the consequence of delving into the supernatural were active in the lives of Elizabethan England. One particularly harsh case of witchcraft in 1578 occurred when Shakespeare was just 14 years old and saw a woman named Elizabeth Stiles brought before the court for her acts of anger, considered so threatening to Elizabeth I that Elizabeth had her famous magus and astrologer John Dee perform acts of counter magic to defend against it. Here this week to share the story of what happened to Elizabeth Stiles, why she was charged as a witch, and what these incidents tell us about Shakespeare's presentation of witches in Macbeth and Henry VI Part Two, is our guest and author of Witchcraft in Shakespeare's England for the British Library, Carol Levin. Carol Levin is a Willa Cather professor of history at the University of Nebraska, where she specializes in early modern English cultural and women's history. She is the author and editor of 19 books, including The Heart and Stomach of a King, Elizabeth I and the Politics of Sex and Power, and the co-authored with John Watkins, Shakespeare's Foreign Worlds. She is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and was a Fulbright scholar at the University of New York in 2015. She is also the author of the one-woman, one-act play, Elizabeth I in Her Own Words, Most recently performed at the 2019 United Solo Theater Festival in New York City. Her current research projects focus on royal women during the late medieval and early modern England periods, and you can find out more about Carol in the show notes for today's episode.
1: Hello, Carol. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Cassidy. I am so delighted to be here.
0: Why are the three witches in Macbeth called the Weird Sisters, and is there a 16th century cultural basis for that phrase? It's a really
1: great question. And weird, which was spelled W-Y-R-D in the 16th century, had other meanings than what we think of today. So it can mean the principle power or agency by which events are predetermined, suggesting fate or destiny, but it can also mean magical power and enchantment which is not the way the word means today at all, but would resonate with Shakespeare's audience.
0: We think of witches as fake, for the most part, and when we see them in plays as an audience, there's not this expectation that we're seeing real witch behavior on stage. However, when Shakespeare was writing about Eleanor, Duchess of Gloucester, conjuring a spell to determine the fate of Henry VI in Henry VI Part Two, for Shakespeare and the audience of the 1590s, to which he was presenting this play, that scene was much more real than we take it today. Carol, what was the scene based on? Was this a real incident that Shakespeare could have been familiar with?
1: It was a real incident that he was definitely familiar with, and he would be familiar with it from reading Hollinshed's Chronicles, other books, The uh, Mirrors of Majesty, that would have explicitly talked about it. And it's a fascinating scene because Eleanor Cobham had been the Duke of Gloucester's mistress. He later married her. She was very ambitious. So she actually did try to find out, since Henry VI had no children, when the young king would die, so she might be queen. But someone in her household, which often happens, let the government know. And she was then, and again, it shows the real difference when somebody is aristocratic versus somebody who is not, because the conjurer and the witch, Marjorie Jordan, were executed. Eleanor, Duchess of Gloucester, was not, but she had to, which was very humiliating, walk the streets of London carrying a candle barefoot and then was exiled for the rest of her life.
0: In another example of real witchcraft from Shakespeare's life, Carol writes that, quote, while Elizabeth was on progress in East Anglia, three wax images, each about 12 inches high, were found in a dung heap in Lincoln's Inn fields, end quote. Carol, why were these wax effigies, also called poppets, associated with witchcraft?
1: Well, I think that's another really great question. And it, again, shows the difference in language in Shakespeare's time with our own, because the word poppet in the 16th century meant a small effigy of a person used in witchcraft and necromancy. And we find many examples of puppets in magic, but where it is especially used and where it was seen as especially dangerous was something known as image magic. And the idea is an image of someone could be harmed and then that person would be harmed. And we have examples of image magic used against Queen Elizabeth throughout her reign, starting as early as 1560, when another kind of or doll was found and had pins stuck in it, and it was clearly supposed to represent Elizabeth. In Ireland, one of the rebels took a, a statue of the Virgin Mary, relabeled it, Elizabeth tied it to his horse and dragged it through the streets. He was later executed for treason. At the very end of her reign, when she was dying, one of her ladies-in-waiting found a card, a playing card with the queen with a, a nail through its head and was thought of, oh, this is against Queen Elizabeth. So image magic was very terrifying because there really was this belief that the image, if the image was damaged, so would the person be. And again, in Hollandshed, we have some amazing examples of Scottish kings who were attacked through using a a poppet who was uh, damaged, and then the king couldn't sleep, was sweating, was having terrible trouble until the witches were arrested. So we can really understand the terror these three poppets held to people, especially the Privy Council, and they were so, in fact, terrified. Especially because when Elizabeth was in Norwich, she was not feeling well. What it actually was was toothache. Elizabeth had bad teeth, and this was always a problem for her. But her headaches, her pains made people think, oh, it's the poppet. And they invited John Dee, who was an astrologer, a magician, well known to Elizabeth. She stopped at his house many times, consulted with him. He was the one who chose at her request the day of her coronation so it would be propitious. And Dee was asked to go to Norwich and do something with the queen to kind of lift any spell that was put on her.
0: Why was someone able to find them in a dung heap? This was surprising to me because I didn't know if dung heaps were regularly inspected or it just didn't seem like a place people would be looking around. I
1: don't think it was inspected. I think somebody was just kind of wandering around there and maybe thinking, oh, maybe somebody threw something out that would be valuable. OK. and. It's kind of funny, I know, because I've, I've found dung heaps when I've been doing research. I found them on a number of occasions in court cases. Oh, the body was buried in a dung heap. Oh, somebody used the dung heap. So I was a kind of I'm kind of amazed by it, too, because you don't think that's a place where people are going to go exploring. But apparently someone did and reported this to the Privy Council and they were terribly upset. In the end, we don't know who made them. That was never actually found out.
0: So how did they identify the effigies as having been made for Queen Elizabeth specifically?
1: Well, one of them was clearly a woman, I think had the name Elizabeth on it and had a little crown. And then they thought the other two were her close advisors, possibly Sir William Cecil and uh, Sir Francis Walsingham.
0: We can see the pervasive mindset concerning witches in Elizabethan England from these examples, but when it comes to the case of Elizabeth Stile in 1578, what did she do specifically that brought her to court over witchcraft?
1: Well, Elizabeth Stile was known for her kind of bad behavior, and there were several, in the 1570s, several accounts of this, things that she had done, and we can talk about that more in a moment. but. A very wealthy person, uh, Richard Galeus, was very upset with her around 78, 79. and then the Privy Council heard that one of the about her, possibly because Sir Henry Neville, or Neville, who was a Justice of the Peace, he had been in the bedchamber for Henry VIII, he had served in Parliament. And he was in regular correspondence throughout the 1570s with Sir Francis Walsingham. So the Privy Council apparently heard that there were Elizabeth Stiles created poppets that were similar to the poppets that were found in the Dung Heap. And though she had not created those, there was the fear she might have. And they, the Privy Council, really encouraged Neville to investigate. And this was, as I say, at the same time, that Richard Gaeless was very upset with things that Elizabeth Stiles had done. And so that kind of pulled together and Elizabeth Stiles and several other women accused of witches were brought to Windsor Castle to be investigated.
0: Carol writes that the neighbor, quote, immediately blamed Elizabeth Stiles for The illness, Carol. Did Elizabeth Style already have this reputation as a witch before she was brought to trial? You mentioned that Galus was upset with her. Was he upset with her over witchcraft?
1: Oh yes, she had. Well, she had a reputation being cranky, antisocial, rude—precisely the kind of woman you wouldn't want to be around. Wouldn't want to be begging from you. In the reports, she was described by her neighbors as quote lewd, malicious, and hurtful to the people and inhabitants thereabouts. Apparently she liked to threaten people, her neighbors, especially, you know, and again, and we'll see it in Macbeth, the idea of mischief following anger, but she liked to beg, ask people for things and would be angry if they didn't give them. So their fear of her helped her for a while to get things, but then really bubbled over. And there were numerous instances of threats, of of spite, of village people having interactions with her and then suffering from pain or illness. It was even said somebody went mad because of what she did. And also, apparently, people knew what she could do, and she also offered to curse someone for a modest fee. So she was certainly had been known for this before it all ended up in her being brought before Sir Henry Neville. This had been going on for some years.
0: Previously on That Shakespeare Life, we've discussed various tests that were done to determine if someone really was a witch or to test if someone was behaving under the influence of magic. Carol, in the case of Elizabeth Stiles, were there specific tests done to determine her guilt or innocence?
1: Well, as I said, she clearly did mischief following anger, which we see in The Witches in Macbeth too. But also, the way we know about Elizabeth Stiles is that there was, uh, in 1579, there were actually two pamphlets. One was an anonymous pamphlet. And then Richard Galus's son also wrote a pamphlet. And that's uh, really, really interesting. Galus himself had been, was a former mayor of Windsor. He had been elected mayor three different times. And so he certainly was powerful in when he was one who was bringing her to trial. So from these pamphlets, we know that Elizabeth Stiles had a witch mark. And witch marks were one of the things that you could tell someone was a witch. And the idea is, and they would usually get a board of matrons to search a woman to see if she had a witch mark. Sometimes they were done by, especially in the 17th century, by professional witch finders, but it would be a mark on her body and it would be what the devil put on her body to kind of seal their deal that he would help her. It also was sometimes the witch mark would be used to nurse the familiar. And in fact, Elizabeth Stiles did have a rat named Philip that she nursed with blood. So the witch mark was definitely another way they could tell she was a witch. I would just add, Cassidy, that I think witch marks I think any especially older women, any woman they found if they searched, they could find something they could Well that's what
0: I was thinking. Like that can be anything from a birthmark to, you know, an oddly placed freckle. That's you can see where that's there's not really a lot of foundation for that in the modern mindset, it seems.
1: One of the things that was sometimes done and we, we see it in the 17th century witch finder, Matthew Hopkins. But he said, well, witch marks have no feelings. And he had this thing that he would kind of prick women and they'd be yelling and screaming. And then he'd do it on the witch mark and they wouldn't have any feeling. But it actually was a retractable needle.
0: <gasps> oh, it was a trick.
1: That was oh, a- no. Yes. And Matthew Hopkins in the mid 17th century was responsible for hundreds of people, mostly women's deaths.
0: Carol writes that Elizabeth Stiles claimed that two women had gotten her involved in witchcraft, named Mother Devil and Mother Dutton, some rather unfortunately named at this point in their trial. But Carol, why are these women called Mother? That seems an interesting title. And what was the image magic they were supposed to have practiced?
1: So Mother was used as respectfully, but usually actually mock respectfully for older, poor women who are uneducated. It was the term that was used. But I also think it's kind of interesting because it also suggests connections, family connections that weren't actually there. And I think you were, Cassidy, asking earlier about the weird sisters. And we don't know if those witches in Macbeth are truly biological family or if they're sisters by their connection with each other in witchcraft. And I'm wondering if so many of women, older women accused of witchcraft were called mother because it, again, maybe even suggested this kind of commonality, connection between them. But it was, as I say, a term that was theoretically supposed to be respectful but in fact was really mocking
0: to use. And they were said to have practiced image magic. Why did Elizabeth Stiles bring them into the trial?
1: Okay so image magic as I've suggested Elizabeth Stiles made (laughs) poppets and would then damage the poppets. She'd put thistles on them other things she'd hang them on her wall and smack them around and this was one of her ways of trying to damage her neighbors if she wanted to do that. And apparently, these other witches were also very much involved in, with image magic. And as I say, especially with the fear of what was happening to Queen Elizabeth, this image magic was seen as very dangerous and serious.
0: Well, what ultimately happened to them? How did the trial end? Were Elizabeth Stiles and the mothers executed? Well, they were. And
1: interestingly enough, Elizabeth Stiles confessed. The other women didn't. But, And we have her confession, and she confessed to all sorts of evil magic and witchcraft that she had performed against various neighbors. But we don't know exactly why she confessed. And one of the things that is said about English witchcraft, as opposed to the continent, is they say, oh, these women weren't tortured. And it's true, they were not put on a rack. They were not tortured in sort of what we would see as some more traditional ways. But it seems to me if you keep a woman on her feet, refusing to allow her to sleep, not feeding her, keeping her that way for 24 hours, 36 hours. And we don't know that happened to Elizabeth Stiles, but we do know that happened to many other women who confessed. It's not surprising that women might well be willing to confess and their minds might be just very scattered by that time. So there were certainly ways to get confessions that were not simply, oh, I want to confess. The other women did not, but Styles' confession was enough that they were all hanged in February, 1579.
0: I know we would love to explore her story further and to look into the history of puppets and some of these other stories you're telling us about how the English... Uh, witches were treated. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more?
1: Absolutely. Keith Thomas's book, Religion and the Decline of Magic, which is an enormous book and has so many interesting things and a huge chapter on witchcraft is really great. James Sharp, Witchcraft in Early Modern England is another really excellent book. And Anne Barstow's Witch Craze, A New History of the European Witch Hunts is also very valuable from a more feminist perspective.
0: We will link to all of these resources as well as Carol's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you visit there to find links to those. Now, Carol, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: I'm so thrilled to get the Bible and Shakespeare, which seems to me kind of almost all you need. So given that these are... Classics, I thought for my. I actually have two choices for my uh, other book. One is Sarah Mendelssohn's and Patricia Crawford's Women in Early Modern England, which again is a huge book with just brilliant, fascinating, wonderful stories and research. And the other is Joe Eldridge Carney's Fairy Tale Queens representations of early modern queenship. And what Carney did, and I think it's just such a beautifully written, brilliant book, is look at early modern fairy tales and then how they represented, suggested, were influenced by the lives of actual queens like Queen Elizabeth or Catherine of Aragon.
0: I think you'd be well set up on your deserted island with those selections. It sounds like good ones. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I've got
1: uh, two projects I'm starting on. I'm I'm finishing another book on Queen Elizabeth, and I would just also add my book, uh, The Reign of uh, Elizabeth I, its last chapter also has a a good chunk on uh, Elizabethan witchcraft. But one of my new books is going to be called Changelings, Bastards, and Fantasy Children's representations of fertility and infertility in English queens. And I start with Margaret of Anjou and go all the way to Queen Anne. I'm fascinated by the ideas people had about queens who didn't have children or whose children were not seen as legitimate for some reason. And uh, Margaret of Anjou, for example, didn't have a, a baby for the first eight years of her marriage. And so at first there were Suggestion: she had faked her pregnancy and a a baby, a low-class baby was smuggled in. And then later that became, no, it was her child, but it wasn't Henry VI's child. Catherine of Braganza was never able to bring a child to term when she became terribly ill, possibly because of a miscarriage and was running a high fever. She actually, in her delirium, talked about her two children and talked to her husband, Charles II, about them. And Charles wanting to keep her calm, talked about them also and how beautiful they were. So I'm really fascinated with the ideas of children, these children being bastards or fantasy children, and why that happened, what it meant about the need for a queen to produce heirs. My other book, which is what I'm going to co-author with my Former grad student, now colleague, uh, Alison Alvarez is called In the Shadow of the Tower, Too Close to the Throne. And we're looking at women in the Tudor early Stuart period who were close to the throne and seen as threats and what happened to them. And these include the three Gray sisters, Lady Jane, but also her younger sisters, Catherine and Mary. It includes Margaret Douglas, the daughter of Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret, Mary Stuart, of course. Arabella Stewart, her niece, and even Queen Elizabeth when she was a princess in the reign of her older sister, Mary.
0: Those sound like fascinating works. I can't wait to read them, and I know you're having a ton of fun putting them together. We'll look forward to seeing those come out. Carol Levin, thank you so much for being here to take us through the history of Elizabeth Stiles and witchcraft in early modern England. This has been a fun conversation.
1: It was really fun for me and Cassidy. I'm just so pleased to have had the opportunity.
0: Find links to the resources Carol recommends in today's episode, along with some bonus images and looks at puppets, witchcraft, and other little tidbits from today's episode in the show notes for today at CassidyCash.com episode 184. That's CassidyCash.com EP 184. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube, completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more, all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com experience. That's CassidyCash.com experience. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.